Okay, welcome back, everyone. We have another very delightful episode of Seaweed Brain for you, as always. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about Piper, a little bit about her interpersonal female-female relationships journey. We're going to be talking about Percy and his (laughs) not-that journey. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We have a new special guest, so stick around. Okay. <laughs> oh, so excited to be here. Alex, not to be confused with Alex Yam, but rather Alex Mann is here with us today. <laughs> Brand new special guest, not quite live from Book Culture New York City, my co-worker. <laughs> Close enough. Alex is here with us today. That's me. Hey, Alex. Hi, Erica. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, Erica and I met in the bookstore. We both work there together. And I very, very quickly started listening to the Seaweed Breed podcast. And I'm obsessed with it. Erica likes to joke that I'm like the best spokesperson for it because every single person I know now knows about the Percy Jackson podcast. Um, (laughs) Like every conversation I have knows about Seaweed Brain. Oh, we really appreciate it. Any spike in our listenership will be will be thanks to Alex. I'm just um, obsessed with it, <laughs> so I'm so excited to be here today. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Alex, you know, we have a couple get-to-know-you questions for you. First would be, like, what was your intro to the Percy Jackson books? When did you first start reading them? Any anecdote you would like to share? I was introduced to the Greek gods and the mythos as a very young child because my dad majored in classics. I mean, he he's like a lawyer, but he majored in classics in undergrad because I didn't know that it doesn't matter what you major in in undergrad, or it didn't matter like forty years ago. So, you know, I grew up with the picture book, the Dowlers. Greek myths, picture book, and, you know, the Egyptian one. But the Greek one was my baby. It was my child, and I need it on my shelf. And I was obsessed (laughs) with the Percy Jackson books, at least as much as I was obsessed with, like, Harry Potter and those things. Mm -hmm. I know you're going to ask this. I pronounced Chiron (laughs) as Chiron because my dad was a nerd. Um, (laughs) And I was a nerd just by being near him. Professor parents. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like to give you a sense of this, like he would wake up at four in the morning. Like my sister and I already had to get up early for school, but he would wake up at like four in the morning and go and sit in the living room with the dogs with his whichever old like epic Greek, like original text he was working on that month. (laughs) And he would have the original text and a translation and a yellow legal pad. And he would take notes of all the words he didn't know. He insisted on reading it in the original, like, he did this for my entire life and he would talk about it at breakfast when we were having our oatmeal parties at 6.30 in the morning. So, like, that's what I grew up on. (laughs) Wow. That is such a beautiful picture you just painted for us, the yellow legal pad. Like, that's so specific, the imagery. It had to be good because I'm sending this recording to him when we finish it. Oh, oh, good. I better not say anything stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your dad can correct us on all of our pronunciation that we will inevitably get wrong because we put no effort into looking up pronunciation anymore. (laughs) So your dad reads Greek. Yeah, my dad reads Greek and Latin and memorably a little bit of old Italian because he insisted on reading Dante's Inferno in the original when I was reading it for Lit Home at Columbia. So like, <sighs> he's himself. That tracks. You know, I feel like I'm getting to know you really well right now. It Alex, explains it all a, makes lot a lot about me. <laughs> It actually does. Um, do you have a strong association to a godly parent or another like 
genus within um, the Percy Jackson universe, a species that you associate um, with? In fifth grade, we all dressed up as Greek gods. We studied whatever, and we had like a meeting of the Olympians. And I was so mad that Hestia was not one of the Olympians. I dressed up as Hestia. <laughs> I know she's a virgin goddess. I know she, like, never had any kids. I'm mad that Rick Riordan only mentioned her so briefly and that he sticks with the, like, oh, Hestia gave up her seat for Dionysus, which, by the way, never actually happened in mythology. That's not, like, a real thing. Really? Yeah. um, Just as, like, a side note. So the canon always had 12 gods as the Olympians, and it was either Hestia or Dionysus, but there's not, like, a myth that says that Hestia gave it up for Dionysus. It just appears differently. Yeah, Dionysus was a really, really old god, and basically when the people in power started adopting the cult of Dionysus as something that they could take control over as opposed to just like a bunch of crazy naked people running around in the woods because I mean the Dionysus the cult of Dionysus threw the best parties and they were all about power so like once he became part of the canon that the higher-ups took control of then Hestia was kind of edged out but I think it's kind of misogynistic to be like Hestia gave up her seat for Dionysus because it Mm. plays into this like oh well, the woman always gives up the seat for the man, and, you know, like, he's so young and interesting and hot and drunk all the time, and, like, she's boring and in the home and whatever. I like her. I like home and comfort and Mm. cozy things. So I know she's a virgin goddess, but I don't care. I would make myself her acolyte. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I guess you listen to the podcast, we've already heard, but that's also my mom's favorite. Um, my mom stands Hestia. <laughs> when we were reading The Last Olympian on the podcast, she listened to every episode. She was like, yeah, that's right. Hestia is the most important <laughs> Olympian. Shout but out I'm her. like, hey, I forgot until I was listening to your podcast that like she is the titular role. Um, yeah. Oh, it hasn't even been 10 minutes and we already dropped a titular role for today. <laughs> Okay, I think we can get started with Piper's POV. Piper is back. I don't remember the last time she was in this book. I literally cannot remember. (laughs) Okay, so, I mean, you remember where we left off. It was the whole Jason Nico thing. We're heading down the coast of what is now sort of Croatia. We're like kind of past Croatia. We're in the Adriatic Sea, moving down, and they have uh, acquired the scepter. So at this point, the weather's kind of weird. They think that maybe it's the scepter's fault because it has all these new powers. And also, like, Nico and Jason are behaving so differently now. Look at Piper being, like, perceptive about people's natures. Yeah, the opening chapter is just, like, her thinking, having having observations about everybody else. She does a little observation of every single person except for Frank. There's no mention of Frank at all in this POV, which oh, I think is so... I didn't even it's notice. Like we just forgot about Frank. <laughs> Can we talk about the fact that this is clearly just to, like, her later thing where she's like, oh, I'm so useless except that I can talk life into a mechanical dragon. This is just to preempt that. This is just so that we start to think that she's not useless. And I'm here to tell you, it's wrong. She is useless. Anyone, it, she's useless the way that Rick Gordon has written her because anyone with these powers would be so badass, but she is not. Percy goes and meditates in the bottom of the river on his powers to like learn how to do new things. She never once practices. And I'm mad about well, it. Well, we get a little, we get a little tiny <laughs> chunk of, but no, it's true because we don't see her practicing. We just get told about it in past tense. Let's, and it's irritating. We get told it's, that she fails. Yeah, we can read a section. <laughs> so her first observation paragraph is on Hazel, who is currently very seasick. <laughs> but then we get this little paragraph. This is the bottom of page 318. 
Piper hoped Hazel would be okay. The last few nights since that fight with Skyron, they'd had some good talks together. Being the only two girls on board was kind of rough. They'd share stories, complain about the guy's gross habits, and shed some tears together about Annabeth. Hazel had told her what it was like to control the mist, and Piper had been surprised by how much it sounded like using charm speak. Piper had offered to help her if she could, and in return, Hazel had promised to coach her in sword fighting, a skill at which Piper especially sucked. Piper felt like she had a new friend, which was great assuming they lived long enough to enjoy the friendship. I do enjoy that. I love that this moment is finally happening. It does make me sad that it hasn't happened earlier, but it's <laughs> nice. And it also makes me sad that we don't get to like yeah, see it play show out. Don't tell That's the most irritating part. I agree. I agree with Carter on this, but you're right. Okay. I guess sister, I guess they do talk about the potential of practicing, but I want to see it. I want to mm. see the two of them actually working together on this. I also I wonder if it is ethical for Piper to um, practice charm speaking. She's like in kind of a rough spot, you know, like mm-hmm. intertextuality, whatever. Um, it's Allison. I'm talking about the Hargrave sister. Yes. Her whole thing is also, I mean, she has basically the same powers. This is an like Umbrella her, Academy this shout This is an Umbrella Academy reference, by the way. Yeah. yeah, season three coming. <laughs> Vanessa Hargraves, I feel like that in a lot of ways is a longer, more thorough explanation of specifically how this power might work and how you might feel about it. And I'm very compelled by the idea that this character is so mortified by the ethical implications of having this power that she never uses it. And I feel like if Rick had written more, that's sort of what he's trying to get at with Piper, that she's like really uncomfortable with this. And that might be why she arguably never gets really good at it or um, is like very thoughtful about the creative ways in which she might be able to use it. Exactly. She, he, (laughs) he calls her out on so many times because she'll, she'll be like, I didn't think I was using charm speak until Leo just immediately slammed that button. And I'm like, this is why you need to practice on someone who's a willing participant. And no one calls her out on it. (laughs) No one calls her out and says like, I'm really uncomfortable with the fact that you make me do things when you're not even aware of it which they would, teenage boys would 100% be assholes about that. I told, yeah. Next up on the Piper observation train is Nico. Nico is like not doing well. And Jason is also worried about Nico. Leo is using his nervous energy um, and like channeling it into his work. As we've talked about before, he's just kind of like fiddling around with things constantly and like rebuilding and fixing stuff before it even breaks. And then there's this quote about Jason. (laughs) Piper knew what her friends whispered about Jason. He was too perfect, too straight-laced. If that had ever been true, it wasn't anymore. He'd been bartered on this journey, and not just physically. His hardships had weakened him, but he'd been weathered and softened like leather, as if he were becoming a more comfortable version of himself. I think it was. I think it was battered on the journey. Not bartered. Oh, sorry. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> bartered. <laughs> he he'd been bartered, matey. Okay. Can someone explain to me where Piper is getting any of this? No. Okay. This is the thing: is that I think there is some support for this and other portions of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, like support in a loose sense. Like I think that some of it Rick takes weird shortcuts for. Like Jason's wearing glasses again, or he does wear glasses again at some point soon, and we're supposed to take that as like, oh, he's not trying to be Superman anymore. Blah blah blah. Whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Superman reference. It was a really good. Yeah. He's doing Clark Kent today. Yeah. Exactly. Nice choice. I don't know. I do also get really frustrated when I read these passages because it just <laughs> a compulsory heterosexuality, perhaps. Is it? I I think it's exactly the same as Hazel looking at Frank and being like, oh, he's changed, but like not really. <laughs> because now Jason has that 
what is it, like, the bullet that went through his hair and, like, shaved a line yeah. off of his... Yeah. It's like when someone has, like, a scar on the eyebrow. Shout out exactly. to this being a period piece and how that was, like, really fashionable <laughs> at this <laughs> point in time. And then on the train, <sighs> observation train, Piper, Piper turns inwards. She thinks about herself, mm. and she's like, wow, she could only imagine what Leo and Jason thought when they looked at her. She definitely didn't feel like the same person she'd been last winter. Blah, 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 blah. So much had changed in seven months. She wondered how the gods could stand being alive for thousands of years. How much change had they seen? Do you think Do you think that her observations about Jason are her finally starting to realize that she shouldn't... Like, that she was maybe only attracted to this, like, potentially perfect version? Like, what do we think about that? I don't think so. I think that this is her trying to idealize him in a different way like it's Mm. for like reconciling if you will this dialectic between her ideas about what a perfect boyfriend is that is projected onto jason a nothing person and then the critiques that she hears from people who she trusts about jason and the kind of person he is and this is her way of being like oh no 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 we've all done this is a podcast it's not a visual medium i am literally resolving the (laughs) dialectic with my my fingers right now (laughs) I think this is her way of trying to hold all of these things together and be like, no, no, this is still like what a boyfriend is supposed to be with my current updated knowledge about all the things that are required of a good man. I feel like we haven't really, until Hazel said that one comment about her not really trusting Jason a couple POVs ago, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we've ever heard really anything negative about Jason, like as far as like... Is that wrong? Carter has not been a fan. There was that whole thing. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, anyway, I I (laughs) have always craved more of Annabeth and Hazel and everyone being critical of Jason. But the fact that the start of this chapter is Piper being like, oh, I'm hanging out with Hazel more. And then this paragraph of her being like, I know what my friends are saying about Jason. I will read between the lines and accept that, take that as Hazel sitting Piper down during one of their practice (laughs) sessions on a little five minute break (laughs) and being like, listen, Jason... Not what you think he is, okay? That's and great. I would like to you. also imagine that, but like specifically, let's keep in mind here, this is like, Hazel and Piper have known each other for like approximately a month. Hazel's 13 years old and she's like, girl, your but man is shady. Is she- like, that's power. That's a queen. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, where else would she, like, you know, Frank isn't being like, oh, uh, Piper. Uh, well, and she's 13. Watch out for Jason. She's 13 and from what? Like the 40s? Yep. So she's sitting there all of 13 years old doing her like hand wringing and like fanning herself that they like say that she does and she's like i just don't know that he's good for you true i want that scene i'm gonna just assume that that's canon actually based on inferences from the text so no reason to believe it isn't and then we jump into the second part of these chapters which is a conversation about the prophecy Mm -hmm. why are you laughing yeah it's a little slow it's I, there's basically a whole chapter that's just Piper speculating about a prophecy we've had for three books now. But it is like um, we, we do need it because we need sure. to like remind everyone. We need to remind the reader like what's actually going on in the book because oh, yeah. it's been kind of you know it's been a minute. We've kind of forgotten about it, and also Piper in her dialogue doesn't just remind us about it. She kind of gives new information, like in case we had not made these interpretive leaps. I think which like I Rick not. treats this conversation. <laughs> Rick treats this conversation almost as though, like, Piper's revelations are, like, fact. Like, everyone treats these things as givens after this point. And I think this is his way of, like, locking it in and being like, this is the correct way to interpret this, in case you were wondering. Which, 
really bothered me as I was reading it. I was like, I think it's hilarious. I mean, we can all make these guesses. They're probably true, but like, I think it's hilarious. That I was acting not- like the prophecy was originally in like ancient Greek, but now that like like the translation error of like, oh, to storm or fire, the world yeah. must fall. But the world, like in ancient Greek, was like Gaia. So like maybe it's maybe it's not that like they're gonna destroy the world. They're gonna destroy the enemy. It's like it was in English. Yeah, <laughs> Rachel said it in English. Are we to assume that like it was given to her by Apollo in Greek, and then like <laughs> Rachel made a translation error? Like I just imagine Piper looking in to her knife catoptrus and like she's like seeing the original text of the prophecy that rachel elizabeth dare is pouring over and she's like with my new knowledge of ancient greek i would love to know that like in rachel's oracle cave she has like a greek to english dictionary (laughs) yeah and she's like before she like spews green smoke she's like flipping through and she's like oh fuck. she's got her what's the right translation for this word (laughs) she's got her own yellow legal pad you know (laughs) exactly exactly oh <laughs> so well, specifically the, the revelation yeah, yeah. we should Go clarify ahead. is that jason and leo are the storm and fire in the prophecy the line is to storm or fire the world must fall piper's like the world is gaia but probably yeah. one of you is going to kill her or the other one is going to die so that's kind of which bad. was not said anywhere in the prophecy sure yeah i guess, I guess they're really reading into that or fight to the death between the two oh. of them carter is frozen Carter will probably come back shortly. If you had to choose, if you had to choose whether Leo or Jason survived this. I was going to put that in the outline and then I was like, is that too mean? No, no, I want to hear this opinion. I was relieved. We didn't, we didn't see Leo at all in, in our reading for this week. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it makes a lot of sense to send Leo away for a period of time, spoiler, spoiler, to Calypso's Island because of this whole, like, he's the odd one out, blah, blah, blah. I think that Jason makes so much sense as a sacrificial lamb. I mean, obviously that happens in Trials of Apollo. I think it's leaning that way. I think at this point, he's really setting up Jason to be sacrificed. Oh, Mm -hmm. perfect becoming imperfect. And everyone's kind of talking about, like, it's turning into a, oh, this person reminds me of um, Luke. Obviously. I mean, he's the other mm. blonde boy. Um, Rick's got to thank for sacrificing blonde boys to the throes of evil. That's why everyone's like, please don't kill Will <gasps> Solus. <laughs> I would die. At this point also, though, I mean, I feel like we've done a good job at setting up in all the POVs how any one of these characters is willing to kind of sacrifice their own life at this point. They all feel so bad about Percy and Annabeth falling into Tartarus and they all feel like they're not doing enough and like I think they would all like throw themselves if they had to at this point overboard to save everyone else like I think one thing that really worked in the original series was that kind of rundown we got of everyone's fatal flaw um and we haven't really Mm -hmm. gotten that in this series and with so many more characters I feel like it would help with like defining each of them but I think the biggest one which you just pointed out is just that like horrible horrible guilt that can be a fatal flaw as well as anything else yeah that is that is detrimental to the team they need to shape up whip themselves up and get themselves to where they need to be because annabeth and percy don't have time for any of that they're just (laughs) you're so right about that they they don't want you feeling guilty and sad up there they need you to just get to work yeah leo's funny in this scene He's, oh, like, he's, he's like, I can set Coach Hedge on fire, then Coach Hedge can be fire. favorite um, line If one of us has to die. Because <laughs> Jason's like, well, yeah. maybe I'm not Storm, maybe Percy's Storm. And there's no one else to be fire. And of course, Leo, now he gets um, 
booted into the sky. And we don't know where he goes. <laughs> Turns out the cold weather is a result of Kione. She is back um, from the lost hero with her Boread brothers. And they're bringing the, the storm, the snow. She has changed sides. So she's now officially a bad guy and she's fighting for Gaia. And pretty quickly, everybody gets incapacitated. Specifically, Leo gets shot into the clouds. <laughs> and Piper is like, what? Where did Leo go? And Kione says, uh, to a place from which he can never return. Da, da, da. So Piper is the last woman standing here mm-hmm. and is going to be responsible for saving everybody. Um, this is her, like, this is a big hero moment for her carrying on her sort of playing the Annabeth role as they were figuring out the prophecy mm-hmm. to right here on page 333. She literally says, what would Annabeth do? <laughs> um, hashtag WWAD. You wrote um, that in the, <laughs> the document and I thought that was Yeah. Funny. Does anyone have that tattoo? If so, send us a pic. Um, <laughs> delay, Piper thought. When in doubt, talk some more. Percy notes this too. That's like also hit, which I did not get through reading the original series. This is not what I thought about Annabeth, but it's so funny Mm -hmm. to me that in retrospect, this is what Rick Gordon is like. This is my characterization for Annabeth. She's a smart talker. Annabeth's our like trickster, Odysseus, favored by Athena, witty, smart character. And also in a way, like her first training was, she kind of got trained by Luke and Talia and Luke being like a son of Hermes and being kind of like really charming. Oh, I feel point. like maybe she picked up on a lot of that sneaky, clever wordiness from him. That's a little headcanon. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're probably right about that because he was very, very good at that. It always kind of pissed me off. And I, I enjoy that Ruridan called himself out on this. That, like Annabeth doesn't really get a power. Her whole thing is like breaking her situation down into component parts and just like making the best of what is up. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me that she would sit with Piper and be like, listen to me, you're doubting yourself and your ability to do things, but let me tell you from years of demigod experience that like talking in itself is a power. Even if there's literally nothing behind it, even, even if you can never charm speak again, just knowing how to talk is going to help you and here's how you do it. I can imagine the two of them like talking that through. Absolutely. If Annabeth knew that she was about to fall into Tartarus and be gone for days, she would have like sat down Piper and Hazel and been like, let's have a five minute meeting. Both of us, you can come to my office and we can talk about like things that I need you to know. No, no, no. She would have written a letter. She would have written a letter in the event of her absence that would have gotten distributed to every person in the crew. It would have been like a part of Daedalus's laptop. Yeah. So Kiri is really using Piper's insecurities against her and is like, what will you do to stop us, Piper? You a hero? Ha! You're a joke. <laughs> she thinks about everybody who, quote, looked down on her, told her she was useless, and then lists these women that we've encountered, that Piper has encountered in the books before, which are Medea, Drew Tanaka, and her dad's old assistant, Jessica. So Piper thinks about these women who have put her down before. And then she hears the voice of Aphrodite in her head saying, each of those women berated you because they feared you and envied you. And so does Kione. So use that. Yeah. (sighs) Which I feel, I feel positively and negatively about. I agree. I think it's the right, like, strategic move for her. But I think... I reject the notion that women have to be at odds with each other. And I think it would have been a really cool yeah. take on the scene for Piper to use her charm speak to kind of start to overcome that like, 
we're two beautiful women and we're both two beautiful women seeking power and trying to reach our own goals. But we don't have to be at odds with that. And given Piper's like history as a character of having so much internalized misogyny and being like, I'm not like the other girls. I'm not pretty. I cut my hair with scissors (laughs) so that boys don't look at me. And Drew Tanaka is a bitch. Given the way that Rick has characterized this version of Aphrodite, it makes a lot of sense that she would say like, those girls are just jealous of you. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it totally makes sense in character, in story, but it is disappointing to be like, uh, women tearing down other women because only one woman can be pretty and powerful and the rest have to be petty. Like, I just wish <laughs> Aphrodite wasn't whispering this stuff in her ear. I don't know if this is, by the way, yeah. actually Aphrodite saying this or whether this is Piper imagining her mother saying this. That was not clear to me. I think it's probably supposed to be actually Aphrodite, but that it's left a little bit open for us. Supportive mom, but poorly supportive mom. Which is also interesting because she's also the mother of Drew Tanaka. (laughs) Oh, ouch. Yes. If you're feeding every one of your daughters this, like, they're mean to you because they're jealous of you thing, then that's just gonna be so messy, like, when they all have to live together in one cabin. Yeah, well, that is how Drew- I can- yeah, that's how Drew turned out the way that Drew turned out. Definitely. Anyway, this serves as an empowerment moment for Piper. Mm -hmm. And page 342, she's like, no, I am powerful. Charm speak is a powerful thing. Hashtag the power of friendship, the power of love. She thinks about how much she loves Festus and how much Festus has done for them and the team. And she puts all of that love into her charm speak and she charm speaks Festus to life. This is genuinely Um, cool. This had me like, (laughs) no, I was reading it in bed like two hours before we started recording this. And I was like, fuck yeah. I like shot up in bed. I was like, this is how you use your powers for good. You literally charm spoke dirt into staying dead. And finally you're doing something useful again. I was so happy for her. This is good. This is also a moment I feel like, yes, and like weird about because I think it's so cool that she gets to unlock all of these things that her charm speak is able to do. I think it's kind of like soft magic rules. We don't really know what charm speak can do, so anything kind of goes. And Festus was already magic. I wasn't really clear that Festus had to be turned on in order to be like awake. I wasn't, I guess I wasn't following the technicalities of it. Like she literally gave Festus life. Basically, he was already kind of artificially intelligent. Well, yeah, this is something Leo's been kind of like almost begging for, for a whole series, right? And she's yeah. just able to do it in 30 seconds. Yeah. Why didn't she do it before? She, did, she didn't believe in the power of herself so uh, that she could use the power of friendship. She needed to believe in herself and then imbue love. There's also something, have we talked about this before? Like the weirdly slightly misogynistic idea of like women talking women talking too much and yeah. like talking being your superpower i don't know <laughs> oh carter's hey, carter. yeah i i really feel like it can be true that that it's uncomfortable and that a lot of aspects of it feel like rick doesn't respect her but also i think we should be able to take it seriously and it's yeah like a power friendship that's a whole thing. But like, I think that there was another approach to it where the natural extension of charm speaking at a higher level should be like, this makes sense as a direction to take it. Like some sort of like generative or creative I power. I yeah. don't know, like speaking, speaking things, things to life. To life. That, like love is a creator of new life and just new things in general. Right. But I don't, I don't feel like that's really what is being explored here. I think, I think he's trying because the original application of her power was the like speaking Gaia to sleep, right? Which was really hard for her. I want her to kind of like draw on that. I think it would be really fun for her to wrestle with this like 
oh, I've spoken things to life now. Can I speak things to death? Like, is that how I'm useful in battle? Ooh. Like how we, we saw <gasps> Percy basically bloodbending yeah. a minute ago, or yeah. like, you know, spit bending, tear bending, yeah. whatever it is. I'm going to call it yeah. bloodbending because that sounds cooler. No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think it'd be really fun for her to explore. Like if, if we had like an R-rated Percy Jackson, yes. like the darker implications of charm speak. <laughs> I think this is definitely a way to take it. I agree with you though, that yeah. the like power of love is a little... Especially because we said so many times Aphrodite is the oldest yeah. of the gods. Her kids should have ancient, Old really serious power. powers. Yeah. Like, there's the whole thing about Aphrodite coming from, like, Uranus's deck. But, like, in a lot of ways, Aphrodite <laughs> is, like, self-generating. That's, like, a part of the mythos that, like, she's sort of yeah. created well, Aphrodite... herself in a lot of ways. In a way that's, like, not not yeah. everybody can say that. <laughs> Do you want a brief mythology side rant about Aphrodite? So Aphrodite is not just, like, an old goddess in the, like, Greek pantheon. She's, like, literally an old goddess. Like, she was pre-Greek. She's technically kind of maybe Ishtar. We make fun of all the time the, like, oh, well, she was born from the, like, castrated balls of Uranus. Like, that's hilarious. But the old, like, fertility gods and goddesses, they're a part of every single religion, and they're almost always the most powerful this like Mm -hmm. conceptualization of life and death and love but what we're seeing of her in these books is primarily just the like love and beauty thing i wish we could draw more on these as like you know aphrodite's and all the other gods are splintering into these versions of themselves i think it would have been really cool if we could get the like splintering Mm. of even older versions of aphrodite because like dionysus she's got like all of these layered versions i think she and dionysus would be really really fun to see them like as their old like primordial chaotic selves yeah chaos aphrodite and chaos dionysus would be so cool (laughs) my reference here is howl's moving castle i don't know if you've read the original howl's moving castle series but in the original book sophie she like talks powers into things and talks to the hats in her hat shop all the time and this is how she realized she has witch's powers she says oh you're gonna bring luck to something and then the person who buys it ends up marrying some like rich duke or whatever and that's the kind of thing that i would love to see in piper's life if she like starts accidentally talking to herself or like talking to things around her room you know as like kids do as adults everyone does that if things just started like happening around her because her power is literally if she talks then the things that she talks about they happen so like she should be talking all the time she should also she and rachel really should be friends she should And before we take a break and go to Percy's POVs, we had a little conversation while you were off Carter about that line where Aphrodite's voice speaks in her head and she's like, all those women are just jealous of you. Is there anything you want to add to that? It's it's unfortunate, but I do like it's unfortunate on the level of it feels bad to see it. But also it is unfortunate in the sense that I increasingly really feel and have felt since we've done this rereading that Piper has so much rich potential to like explore the intricacies of like what it means to construct like a femininity and like an explicitly like effeminate power system that like could include all of these things like none of the things that are written I feel necessarily conflict with that it's just that I really think that it's hard to feel weight of these explorations to feel that they are being thoughtful and thorough and also like to see them in a book for children without the next, you know, like, (laughs) 
a hundred or two hundred yeah. pages that would be necessary to like really pause and be like, this is why like we should take it as legitimate and like subversive and inventive that Piper has powers like this and this is how they might work. And this is what it means for Piper to have a complicated relationship to her own femininity in relation to these powers that she has. And like, like the idea that she thinks these things and that Aphrodite thinks these things, I think that it's like, it's unfortunate, but it also could be like a really cool conversation starter for her to have a dialogue with Aphrodite about that or a dialogue with herself about this, where she's like, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Do I feel these things too? Why do I feel these things? Like, I, I think it, yeah. I, it's realistic <laughs> to see like, powerful women being jealous of one another and therefore fighting. It's not like that doesn't happen in real life. It's just like sad that Aphrodite perpetuates that and like separates Piper further from those women in this moment. Like it's not sisterhood. It's anti-sisterhood. It's saying like you are powerful Piper, but you are more powerful than them and they are petty and you can be like the one true version of like powerful femininity and that these girls are like annoying. She specifically says this is the way you gain power. You use it against the people who think that you might be better than them to begin with. It's like about exploiting insecurities, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I would rewrite it. Like, no no, tea, no shade to Rick. Like, it's a hard hard thing to write about um, and to find that balance between, like, realistic misogyny and, like, not perpetuating misogyny in a book for children, but... I think you need more. I think that's it. It just deserves its own yeah. book. Like, it, it it just needs to be, More like, a whole 300-page yeah, book of her and Rachel Elizabeth Dare her confronting Aphrodite together. If we could hear, like, I know this is, like, the most that he's ever going to do where we get, like, three female perspectives in one book. But, like, you do kind of get into this modern trap where, like, you just keep adding more and more characters to your core list and expanding outward and being like, oh, all of these people have, like, full interior lives and you get bigger and bigger. This is sort of like a... I don't know, like Steven Universe sex education phenomenon where like you keep growing your circle of like really intense empathy more and more and more. And then like, I don't know, maybe like you fly off the wheels because there's too many people or something. But like, I feel like you can't say these things about these people and then not revisit it and never give them other words to say is another You're right. <laughs> like, it's You're just very right about it. Maybe that. just like one sentence being like, yes, you are right. Those women were jealous of me, but I forgive them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I too was jealous of them at one point. And I recognize it's not their fault. And my spite against them will not be the thing that motivates me in this moment, but rather our unity as powerful women who the world has stepped on. And I will use the power of my woman friendship now to wake this metal giant. The power of woman friendship. There we go. It's not the power of friendship, it's the power of friendship. (laughs) To say that. Yes. And robot dragon friendship. Anyway, I think that's what we need to say about that. Let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about... Percy and bloodbending and dark Percy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so you remember where we were last time. We had Annabeth with her call to action as we were leaving the home of the gentle giant, whose name I've already forgotten. Wow. It's Domasen. Domasen. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we're leaving. We're heading off to find Oculus because we are now going to try and follow through on Yapetus's slash Bob's plan to shield them with night. 
so that they can sneak past and get close to the doors of death. Percy's trudging through. He's pissed. (laughs) He's pissed. He's tired. And when we stumble upon Oculus and we get this description, it gives me similar vibes to when we first meet Arachne, except for because it's Percy's POV, it's also like really funny. I I think that these chapters are so genius because they're terrifying and they're also really funny. It's like Rick is trying to really create this ominous atmosphere and Percy is like, can we just not? Like, (laughs) On page 349, the creature raised her head and Percy's stomach screamed, help me. Her body was bad enough. She looked like the victim of a famine. Limbs like sticks, swollen knees and knobby elbows, rags for clothes, broken fingernails and toenails. Dust was caked on her skin and piled high on her shoulders as if she'd taken a shower at the bottom of an hourglass. Her face was utter desolation. Her eyes were sunken and roomy, pouring out tears. Her nose... (laughs) It's gross. (coughs) Gagging. Her nose dripped like a waterfall. Her stringy gray hair was matted to her skull in greasy tufts, and her cheeks were raked and bleeding as if she'd been clawing herself. That is the most visceral image of, like, a disgusting body. Rick was, like, dusty, sandy, um, taking a shower at the bottom of an hourglass, Greg. Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Rick saw one of his children get, like, matted hair for the first time and was like, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. (laughs) So she's the death miss, but she's also misery. Here's my literary connection and, like, how I see her as a person. She's got this duality between mist and when when annabeth and percy become the death mist because they're not just shrouded in it they basically become it and they look like they are dying and percy looks down at his hands and it's just mist she's got this duality between mist and the body right the mist kind of becomes the body they somehow become more embodied more mortal as they start to like decay and die before their eyes but also less embodied because they're straight up just missed and they like can't move right and they feel sluggish. But this image of her is so grotesquely bodied. I don't really know how else to describe it. Mm -hmm. Everything about her is so incredibly human, but like the worst parts of being human. Like a human corpse. Yeah, but just like someone who's so, like this is what happens when you sit in a body and don't know how to deal with it. Like if you never took a shower, if you never brushed your hair, if you never went to like the bathroom, but you know, like this is what happens to someone who is literally made of mist but has to deal with a corporeal form. Like she's raking her hands across her face and doesn't even realize that there's blood. She's got all these scratches, her nose dripping like a waterfall and she doesn't know how to deal with that. Like this is what happens when someone who's meant to be incorporeal is somehow corporeal. And it's it's miserable. This like this is how immortals deal with mortality. It's utter utter misery. I loved all of that. That That's was so reading. cool, Alex. <laughs> Incorporeal is the new word of this week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> word of the day. Um, in case anyone was wondering, if Percy and Annabeth succeed in getting covered in death mist, isn't it basically going to kill them? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just to clear that up. Alex, would you like to read this notable quote from page 351? Oh, hell yes, I would. <laughs> Annabeth turned the blade of her dragon bone sword, which Percy had to admit made her look pretty intimidating and hot in a barbarian princess kind of way. It's giving that girl from How to Train Your Dragon, what's her name? 
The one voiced by yes. Monica Ferrara. Oh, oh. The one who people are always like, what are that you? is Percy and Annabeth, Hiccup, and what's her face? Astrid. Astrid, Astrid and Hiccup, Astrid. yeah. I actually haven't seen the entirety of How to Train Your Dragon, because famously, when they screened it at Lady our Gaga. sixth grade... <laughs> Christmas party. They screened it at our sixth grade Christmas party, and Carter and I and our other friends chose to not watch How to Train Your Dragon and to instead use the empty free classroom to have a Lady Gaga dance party where we turned all the lights off. Not like the other girls. Oh, we were literally not like the other girls. (laughs) And they knew it too, don't you worry. Um. (laughs) Anyway, that's why I haven't seen How to Train Your Dragon. In the name I wouldn't watch it afterwards. Have you not ever been on a plane and been curious? Like I've, I've never been on a plane. <laughs> it is a plane movie, a really good plane movie. They're but very a plane lovely. Movie, yeah, I have I have good fun with them. Um, but anyway, there we go. Right. so the first task is to convince Oculus to shroud them in the death mist. She doesn't want to do that. Naturally, what do they do? Persebeth tries to goad her into it by insulting her and saying she's incapable of doing it, and then saying it'll be fun to do it because you'll let us die anyway eventually aquas is like fine i'll do it and she drags them deeper into the darkness separating them from bob because for some reason bob can't go here well she says it's because he's not mortal this is something only mortals can do which brings my whole like body thing back is like this is something only mortals can do is like Mm. forego the body also because if we're gonna try to make sense of like Oculus being the mist itself and then the mist with the capital M that works in the mortal world to shroud the mortal's eyes from what's really going on, Mm -hmm. then it's something that really kind of only exists and functions for mortals. So that, that definitely makes sense. White smoke gathered around Percy's feet. As it coiled up his legs, he realized smoke wasn't surrounding him. It was coming from him. His whole body was dissolving. He held his hands and found they were fuzzy and indistinct. He couldn't even tell how many fingers he had. Hopefully still ten. He turned to Annabeth and stifled a yelp. Your, uh, he couldn't say it. She looked dead. Her skin was sallow. Her eye sockets dark and sunken. Her beautiful hair had dried into a skein of cobwebs. She looked like she'd been stuck in a cool, dark mausoleum for decades, slowly withering into a desiccated husk. When she turned to look at him, her features momentarily blurred into mist. Percy's blood moved like sap in his veins. For years, he'd worried about Annabeth dying. When you were a demigod, that went with the territory. Most half-bloods didn't live long. You always knew that the next monster you fought could be your last. But seeing Annabeth like this was too painful. He'd rather stand in the river Phlegathon, or get attacked by Arai, or be trampled by giants. The sentence, for years, he had worried about Annabeth dying. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. You have? I never could have guessed. Like, yeah, like, we we know that this is a realistic concern for them. Like, the whole thing about demigods is that they know they're not going to live to be old, and they fight monsters, and a lot of them die before they even make it to Camp Half-Blood. But hearing him say it, like, I've been worried for years, of course I have, about Annabeth dying. Oh, my heart. Oh, my heart. <laughs> but this isn't just seeing her, like, right after she's dead either. You fully know, like, she's dead. She's been dead for months or years, and she is never coming back. Yeah. It's, like, that kind of fear. It somehow, like, grounds the stakes, because we've been in these life-or-death, mostly-death situation <laughs> for a whole book now. <laughs> Mostly it's death. time that we actually come to face death. We need our Cheryl Dare Act 5 
Yorick moment. Alas, I knew him, Horatio. <laughs> Cheryl Dare is our English teacher. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cheryl Dare is our high school English Sorry, teacher. Sorry, I'm not citing Shakespeare. Really I'm year. citing Cheryl Dare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl Dare. Um, if you were wondering if this was a trap, <laughs> yes, it is. It's a trap. <laughs> to which Percy says, yeah, yeah, let's get to the fighting. Like... <laughs> They were like, sure, we'll just go through the motions. We'll insult you. You'll do what we want. You'll say it's a trap, and then we'll have a battle. Fine. <laughs> Exhausted. It's a trap, Annabeth said. Didn't you expect me to betray you? Yes, Annabeth and Percy said together. Like, iconic. They're so iconic. They're so tired. And as soon as that happens, it says her fingernails grew into talons, her jaw unhinged, and her yellow teeth elongated into fangs. Yikes! When her jaw unhinges, <laughs> my God! It's a note from me, sis. He imagined the fates up in Olympus, laughing at his wishful thinking. LOL, noob. <laughs> <laughs> we love a we love a period piece. Sometimes I forget that Rick Riordan is a man who wrote the sentence "LOL, noob" in a book. Like, what a guy! Oh my God! How did he know about noob? How did he know? I, I, I think that our conversation yesterday really did clarify for me that some authors probably do read their own fan fiction and like get ideas. Um, <laughs> and Rick is absolutely one of those authors. He, come on, come on. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. We were at the Daughter of the Deep book tour and the Solangelo news came out and Rick was like, as the kids say, Solangelo, did I say that right? I'm like, girl. <laughs> You read Solangelo fanfic. Shut up. <laughs> Why do you say how do you say it when you know how you say it? How do you say Solangelo? That's exactly That's how you, you say Solangelo, Rick. Rick. You invented it. <laughs> he wrote that fanfiction first. This is an unintelligible <laughs> reference that no one will understand. No, but hey, from- we have listeners our own age. Let's not shoot ourselves in the foot. <laughs> and if you're not, please le- learn your history. Look up the most popular girls in school. <laughs> on YouTube and watch through it. Learn your history. Anyway, this is where Percy starts teasing her, calling her happy, cuddly, fuzzily, warm, and huggable. Tag yourself. I'm Grins. I, I want to be fuzzy, warm, and huggable. I'm her. <laughs> I'm Oculus in this tag yourself challenge. <laughs> All right. It's time. All right. And now it's time. I'll read it if you want me to. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Time. He was dimly aware of Annabeth shouting, throwing random pieces of dragon jerky at the goddess. The white-green poison kept pooling, little streams trickling from the plants as the venomous lake around him got whiter and whiter. Lake, he thought. Streams. Water. Probably it was just his brain getting fried from poison fumes, but he croaked out a laugh. Poison was liquid. If it moved like water, it must be partially water. He remembered some science lecture about the human body being mostly water. He remembered extracting water from Jason's lungs back in Rome. If he could control that, then why not other liquids? It was a crazy idea. Poseidon was the god of the sea, not of every liquid everywhere. Then again, Tartarus had its own rules. Fire was drinkable. The ground was the body of a dark god. The air was acid, and demigods could be turned into smoky corpses. So why not try? He had nothing left to lose. He glared at the poison flood encroaching from all sides. He concentrated so hard that something inside him cracked as if a crystal ball had shattered in his stomach. Warmth flowed through him. The poison tide stopped. 
the fumes blew away from him back towards the goddess. The lake of poison rolled toward her in tiny waves and rivulets. Aklas shrieked, what is this? Poison, Percy said, that's your specialty, right? He stood, his anger growing hotter in his gut. As the flood of venom rolled toward the goddess, the fumes began to make her cough. Her eyes watered even more. Oh, good, Percy thought, more water. Percy imagined her nose and throat filling with her own tears. Atlas gagged. I, the tide of venom reached her feet, sizzling like droplets on a hot iron. She wailed and stumbled back. Percy, Annabeth called. She'd retreated to the edge of the cliff, even though the poison wasn't after her. She sounded terrified. It took Percy a moment to realize she was terrified of him. Stop, she pleaded, her voice hoarse. He didn't want to stop. He wanted to choke this goddess. He wanted to watch her drown in her own poison. He wanted to see just how much misery, misery could take. Percy, please. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. Some might call it misery business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was good. <sighs> we really got some dark yeah. Percy. Actually, I even want to shout out the line that comes right after that, where it says, um, the, like, Annabeth's face was still pale and corpse-like, but her eyes were the same as always. The anguish in them made a- Percy's anger fade. Mm-hmm. What's going to bring him back from the edge? He's it's literally Annabeth. Like, it's Annabeth every time. And this, what this scene really makes me think of is Luke Castellan and Percy and Luke being two sides of the same coin. And the mm-hmm. thing that stopped Percy from becoming <gasps> oh. Luke was his mortal tether, which was <sighs> Annabeth, like all of his friends, but also Annabeth. Like, that the way that Percy right. never lost sight of, like, his humanity and of, like, his... <laughs> greater morals was that he had somebody there that he was capable of listening to that somebody there telling him to like stop and that that was something that luke was too Mm -hmm. far gone to be able to do percy is so powerful and he's so capable of so much and so much terror and terrible things but he has annabeth there and he has the capacity to look into annabeth's eyes and realize that he's doing something he shouldn't be doing yeah yeah well and i love nico with all my heart but like this is why Percy and Nico would not make a good couple. Is because if Nico had been the one down there with him, Nico would have been like all for it. He would have been like, no, this is not the bad. reason why Percy and Nico wouldn't make not a good bad. couple. <laughs> We're gonna get so canceled. <laughs> wow, Sorry. that's really funny though. I mean, I think it is an accurate assessment there, there were many other reasons, reasons but also like perhaps personality incompatibility it's true they're um, too much well, like annabeth annabeth's like a brutal person like but she's always practical and at this point you're wasting your energy yeah we have more important things it. to deal with so like you don't cause suffering where it's not necessary yeah she keeps them on task <laughs> well it's not just keeping on task it's like the scene is is like right after their meeting with damasen and that of course is right after their whole Yep. Journey with the Ari, right? Like, we don't want an arc that's Percy and Annabeth saying, oh, wow, look at these past things that we did. Those were really bad. It Maybe we shouldn't have done those things. We feel some regret and complicated feelings, but, like, we'll think about that. Like, no, that's not a good arc. We need, we need them to have those things, like, reflect on this, reflect on, like, the violence that they impose upon people who are categorically different than them and beings that are categorically different than them without second thoughts, and then proceed to 
be worse, to do the worst thing that they've done up until this point. Or yeah. else it doesn't mean anything, you know? Like, Yeah. No, this was the only way for the story to go is he had to not take that last step. And I'm proud of him for it. I'm just saying if Nico were down there, he would not have <laughs> stepped in. <laughs> Nico would have been like, death mist? I am the death mist. <laughs> <laughs> Misery? I'm always miserable. <laughs> Hurled himself over the cliff into the darkness. <laughs> Iconic. Um, and plot-wise, at the end of this, they do end up meeting Night, Night. with the capital N. Mm. One more terror before we're on Spicy. our way to the doors of death. It's so yeah. good. Alex, we do have um, two questions for you. <laughs> oh, what oh, question? You? Well, you know what? Since you've been listening to the podcast, let's just ask you both. The first question is, <laughs> do you believe Persebeth is the greatest love story ever told? I think Achilles and Patroclus might be the greatest love story ever told, Whoa. but someone could come in and um, I think Persebeth is easily the greatest love story ever told for children. I think they have a very, I mean, this is odd coming from the passage that we literally just read, but they have a very healthy relationship. No, it's true. And it's this true. is what, this is what the youths need to see. I think every good relationship I've literally ever had in my life was in part influenced by Aww. Persebeth. Um, they're so supportive of each other. They like are cautious when they need to be and, you know, sweet and just like comfortable to be around, but they love each other so much and I love them so much and I am small and insignificant and I'm not sure whether I can say what the greatest love story ever told is, but they're one of my favorites. Wait, when you say Achilles and Patroclus, let's, let's go back to that for a second. Like, are you, are we talking as told by Homer or as told by Madeline Miller? <laughs> or is it like, are we talking like some sort of weird and mystical or. super and cultural both. idea of how this exists in the heads of people who are not either of those people i mean in the iliad i mean that's that's the one that like i was thinking of and part of what i'm saying is like greatest is like that's survived that's like genuinely survived for a really long time and no one can argue that it's not a love story i don't take criticism <laughs> it is it always has been like I like their love story because it is both toxic masculinity and combating toxic masculinity. It's queer love at its finest. It's um, dragging your enemies around on the back of your chariot because they pissed you off by killing the one you love. Like, I am here for every part of that love story. Um, I do think it's one of the greats, but... To be fair, Alex is the only one on this call who has actually read The, the Alien. Alien. <laughs> so, who are we? Wait. Who are we to insult the text um, that we have purposefully you not read? You read Madeline Miller, and you haven't read Absolutely. The Alien? and I will Never not be doing read that. The Alien. <laughs> Why would I do that? Okay, I'm gonna say something that's, like, borderline heretical. Dad, you can shut your phone off now. Um... <laughs> The poetry and the writing, brilliant, but you should read the story in any form that you can take it in. If the form that you can take it in is Madeline Miller, great. If the form that you can take it in is like a prose version of the Iliad, of which there are many, I do recommend mm -hmm. it. It's kind of like, for instance, I don't know if anyone's read Maria Headley's version of Beowulf, which starts with the line, um, bro... Tell me we still know how to speak of kings. Actually, in keeping with the tone of the original text, which I can tell you because I've read it in the Old English. Like, every one of these old epic poems sounds like that in the original text. So I'm just like, forget the pretentiousness. Yeah. Take, like, literally whatever version of the story yeah. 
you can comfortably read. Absolutely, absolutely. And our second question is, ultimately, all of this this work we're doing in these books <laughs> written by Mr. Riordan are to save Western civilization. Do we think that that's worth it? Should we maybe not? <laughs> I know it's a long-standing tradition for people to come on and say, no, what the fuck, like, stop We've this, had some, stop. no, we've had some, yes, it's worth it, particularly notably from Carter's little sister. I think it's worth it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be wild again and say I think it's worth it. Maybe not the gods themselves, but I mean, we are talking about millions and billions of people here with their own traditions and traditions that have come from old traditions and there's like art and work and, and I wouldn't say that we should laud <laughs> Western civilization above everything else. Like there's a lot that's wrong with it, but you know, save what you can, rebuild what right. you must. And that's that's what the demigods do. Ultimate, that is the choice that they make too. <laughs> I wish they'd rebuild more, but. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today and sharing with us your facts, your knowledge, your anecdotes. Seaweed brain. Is there anything you want to plug? Yeah, I stream on Twitch. Uh, my handle is that T Witch. It's very exciting for me. I talk about myths <laughs> and literature and spooky stuff. <laughs> I drink tea. It's Aww, good. Oh, that's so fun. Join Alex there, and we will see y'all next time. Bye. 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 <laughs>